And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Keith Matheson. He's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformation Bible College. Uh, Dr. Matheson, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, um, we're coming up pretty soon here on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It'll be celebrated later this year. And one of the contributions of the Reformation was the idea of sola scriptura. And to get us started today, I'm wondering if you can explain what is meant by that phrase. Well, the words themselves simply mean scripture alone, and that doctrine um, arose out of late medieval debates immediately prior to the Reformation regarding the relationship between Scripture and tradition variously understood and the authority of the Church. And at the time of the Reformation, um, because of various abuses, the Protestants were arguing that Rome was basing a number of its doctrines and practices on traditions that could not be supported by Scripture, and were basing these doctrines and practices on their own authority or on human traditions. And so the, these Protestants argued, no, Scripture alone should be the foundation for our doctrine and for our practice, and if it can't be found in Scripture, then it's something that um, can't, be, can't be binding on the consciences of, of Christians. It is... It, sometimes misunderstood, Sola Scripture is sometimes misunderstood in the sense of a complete repudiation of all historic teaching, of all creeds and confessions, of of the usefulness of Church Fathers, but that's more of a modern understanding that grew out of a radical Reformation view, and really characterized a more restorationist view of of the scriptures, the, the the mainstream Protestant reformers such as Martin Luther, Martin Bucer, John Calvin, uh, Zwingli, and so forth, didn't understand it in that way. They saw a relationship between scripture and the church and tradition, where scripture was the only inspired by God source of doctrine, but it was related to creeds, for example, in a in a certain way where the creeds were subordinate authorities, and the Church confessed its faith through these confessions. The Reformers, in fact, wrote hundreds of confessions of faith, but they never placed them on the same level of Scripture. So, sola scriptura has to be understood, first of all, within that medieval context of debates over the relationship between Scripture and tradition, and then also distinguish between later distortions of it. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, You kind of already answered another question I had, and that was, um, you know, given that sola scriptura is valid, which it is, um, what about traditions? Because we all live and move and (laughs) have our being, and, you know, we have this uh, history that that we have of the church and how it's um, understood the Bible to mean certain things and certain teachings and some things aren't even so clear. Um, let's say, uh, like the word Trinity. You know, we hold the soul of Scripture, and yet, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the word Trinity is not even in there, and yet we firmly hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, so it seems like um, there's a 
um, like you say, there's a subordinate position of these creeds and confessions to the to the notion of sola scriptura. Right. If if you look back at the, the early creeds, for example, the Nicene Creed of 325 and the the later, more developed Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381 they begin with the words, we believe, and it's basically the Church confessing, here's what we believe the Scripture teaches. It's not the Scripture itself, but it's the Church's confession of what it believes the Scripture teaches. And everybody has this, everybody has a creed, even the statement, no creed but Christ, or no creed but the Bible is itself a creed. It's a statement of what you believe, credo, that the Bible teaches. So unless you simply read the words of the Bible verbatim in their original languages all the time, you're interpreting, you're working within a tradition. Tradition, in the biblical sense of the term, is simply to hand down. These things are handed down. The question is always whether that which has been handed down is good or bad. Is it something that conforms with Scripture or something that conflicts with it? So tradition... Uh, as I was saying, there were, within the medieval church, there were a number of disputes over the relationship between Scripture and tradition. There were those, even within the medieval church, who argued that there was one source of theology, Scripture, and tradition was conceived, this is somewhat oversimplified, but conceived as the proper interpretation of Scripture. So it wasn't equivalent to, it was just a way of saying, here's what we believe Scripture teaches. And yet there were others, and this view grew more and more dominant immediately before the 16th century, this other view, that there were two sources of theology, and part of it was found in the Holy Scriptures, and part of it was found in these unwritten traditions. And so the Church could appeal to both Scripture and this uh, unwritten source to to build its theology, to construct theology. And regarding the word Trinity, that was a good example as well, because historically, traditional Protestants have never denied that we not only teach what Scripture explicitly says, but what is um, what is the good and necessary consequence of Scripture. Right. So the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, or the word Trinity, is simply a shorthand way of saying several propositions that are clearly taught in Scripture. There's one God that's taught in Scripture. Scripture also teaches that the Father is God, it teaches that the Son is God, it teaches that the Holy Spirit is God, and yet it teaches that the Father is neither the Son nor the Spirit, the Son is neither the Father nor the Spirit, and the Spirit is neither the, the Father nor the Son. And the word Trinity is a way of saying, here is a word that entails and encompasses all of these propositions, and the doctrine of the Trinity then is a way of drawing boundaries about how do we explain all of this in a way that doesn't shortchange one of these propositions or another in the way that certain heresies have historically done? Yeah. So um, you're you're teaching uh, young people mostly, probably some older adults too, but I would assume they're younger. Um, you're a professor of systematic theology at Reformation Bible College. Kids come in. Um, do, do you sometimes find a, um, let's see, kind of a, you know, the Bible, it's a big book. Um, and some some kids, maybe they, they want to read it as a whole versus some other ones, 
want to parse it into two different eras and say, well, one is past, and so we don't have to pay much attention to that. Uh, the New Testament basically is all I need. Is is that sentiment ever seen? Well, we do have students coming from a variety of backgrounds. Most are younger. They're either immediately out of high school or just a few years out of high school. And some come to us having been raised their entire lives in the church. Some come to us having converted to Christ. Um, just a few months or years prior. And so we do have students coming in with a variety of pre-understandings of, of what the Bible is. And so we, we, we're trying, especially in the first semester and first year, to get everybody on the same page and understand some of the big picture principles. And one of the things that I used to emphasize when I taught the hermeneutics class because there are a lot of students who come in completely unfamiliar with the Old Testament and uh, ignorant of how significant it is. Um, enough of them come in that I wanted to to emphasize over and over and over again that although you can understand the New Testament, reading it by itself, you can get the, the basic gist of the storyline. You cannot fully grasp it if you don't understand the Old Testament background, and one of the ways you can point this out to people is just look at the first few verses of every one of the first Gospels. Matthew begins talking about Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Well, who's Abraham? Who's David? If you don't know who those are, you're already a little bit lost in the first few verses, and both Mark and Luke, at the very beginnings of their Gospels, are citing and quoting passages from the Old Testament and placing their Gospels within this narrative background that began in Genesis. And then John very subtly introduces his Gospel with, in the beginning, someone who's familiar with the Old Testament and reading uh, this is going to immediately pick up on the echo of Genesis 1. And how is that relevant to what John begins to say about Christ? So, yes, uh, that is an issue we have to deal with, but it's one we work very hard to overcome, and our goal, and I think this is a goal of the uh, teachers of Scripture and, and any conservative school would agree with, is we want the students to come away loving the Old Testament and seeing its beauty and how the whole Bible fits together, um, and not just become New Testament Christians. Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. And uh, people may not have heard of your college, but that your college, I believe, was founded by uh, R.C. Sproul, was it not? Yes, sir. Yeah. So um, many stations carry him on the air. We certainly do and uh, enjoy it. Um, so when we open the Scripture, um, what's the basic setting we should have? Um, continuity or discontinuity? <laughs> that's a, that's a really hard question to ask, I guess. Uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a question encompassing quite a few subordinate questions, but there is a a basic continuity. The entire Bible there's a backbone, a narrative backbone that stretches throughout the Old and New Testament. It ties it together, beginning in Genesis one. We read and, and reading forward through all of the historical books, we read. Of, of creation, and then the fall, and then um, uh, the spread of sin, and the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, and the call of Abraham, and so forth, and the patriarchal history, and then the um, the descendants uh, of, of Israel 
growing in Egypt and then the exodus and the rise of the, um, well, Joshua's conquest and so forth. And you read this entire narrative history, and it goes throughout the entire Old Testament, and then there are breaks within it, there are gaps within it, even between Genesis and Exodus, there's about 400-year break, and there's a 400-year or so break between the last narrative events of the Old Testament and the beginning of the narrative of the New Testament with the Gospels, but there's this overarching narrative backbone that goes from creation all the way through, and then uh, the other books fit within that, the prophetic books, the writing prophets, they were all writing during the period of time described in, in the Kings, the letters of Paul, they're for the most part written during the same period of time described in the book of Acts, Psalms fits in, Proverbs fits in that way as well. So you have this narrative story background where the continuity is seen, and then these other books can be read against the background context of that narrative history. So I would argue for an overarching narrative and uh, theological continuity between both Testaments from creation to new creation. Yeah, that's helpful. Let's think a little bit about um, current events there's nothing new, really. And, you know, on the world scene, we we see conflict. It, it doesn't end. Uh, we see wars and genocide. Um, in the past uh, eight years, certainly nine years, ISIS has been on the rise. Um, recently, um, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was taunting the United States after carrying out an intercontinental ballistic missile test. It appears that that's... Uh, that's one of the current threats we're dealing with as, as a nation. It's uh, sometimes tempting for Christians to start using their Bibles almost like a crystal ball. And I think there's a lot of this on some of the TV preachers. But, um, you know, use that along with the latest web posting or kind of like a newspaper exegesis, perhaps, I suppose we could call it. Um, I assume that there's a better way to handle God's Word when trying to understand his plan for this world. And I'll stop there and let you comment on that before I ask you another question. Uh, that is an interesting question. I um, became a Christian not long after graduating high school and uh, through a series of providential events ended up going to a church that taught a, a dispensational way of reading Scripture. And one of the things that constantly came up within those circles of Christians was reading whatever current events were going on in into the text of Scripture, finding prophecies of the Iraq War or the, the oil crisis or whatever happened to be the problem. Back in those days, Russia was the big threat, so Russia was found all throughout the prophecies, or the Soviet Union was found throughout various prophecies. Uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, that became replaced with newer threats. And today, we're seeing this as well with uh, North Korea and ISIS and things like that. And I would venture to guess if the Lord tarries in 30 or 40 years, whatever the threats are at that time will be found in these various prophecies. And I don't think that's a helpful way to read Scripture. I um, I saw this when I was studying at Dallas Seminary, which is where I spent the first two years of my seminary career. And at that time, it was during the, the first Iraq War, and so uh, Dr. Walford's 
old books on um, prophecy were being reprinted under new titles that had more direct relevance to that particular crisis of the early 90s. But those crises have come and gone, and so the books themselves end up in the five-cent bin at used bookstores because they're no longer uh, relevant to what's going on today. I think it's wiser to look at these prophecies in their original context, look at what, say, Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah was originally dealing with, which was the sin and idolatry and rebellion of Israel against the covenant that God had established with with the people, and it was written within its own historical context and within its own with its own historical crises in view. And the, for the pre-exilic prophets, that crisis was the impending exile that God was going to bring upon the people if they did not repent. Um, this led to ultimately, since they didn't repent, it led to the. Um, destruction of the northern kingdom, and then later the destruction of the southern kingdom, and people were driven into exile. So those those prophecies, I believe, are better understood and better read if we look at them within their own historical context rather than um, trying to read our context into them. They were still prophets. It's not that they weren't prophesying the future, but they were specifically prophesying the future that these people they were speaking to were about to experience, for the most part. And then they would also have um, prophecies of hope on the other side of judgment. So they would pro- they would basically come to the people of Israel, the pre-exilic prophets, and say, if you don't repent, those judgments that God warned about back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy are going to come upon you, including exile. And the closer they got to the time of the exile, the more the stronger those prophecies became, and ultimately the people reached the point of no return and went into exile. And so the prophets in those years immediately preceding the exile say, okay, judgment's coming, but it's not the last word. God uh, is not going to completely abandon his people, there will be a remnant come out of this on the other side. And so they start looking forward to a restoration on the other side of of the exile, and they speak of it in terms echoing the original redemption of Israel from Egypt. Just as Israel was called out of slavery in, in Egypt, they're going to be called out of exile in a, in a new exodus. And so when we read the New Testament in that light, it sheds a ton of light on many of the passages in the Gospels. Um, so I, that would be my primary um, response to that, is let's look at these Old Testament prophecies and New Testament prophecies within the light of their original context, first and foremost. They do have application for us today, but they did have their own original context. We weren't when we read the Old Testament. We're not reading Nostradamus, somebody right. who went into some kind of ecstatic experience and related visions that he saw that had nothing to do whatsoever with their original audience. We're, we're dealing about real historical prophets that God sent to a real historical people, Israel, that were facing an imminent threat due to their own disobedience. As we look at um, the spread of the gospel in history prior to the coming of the Lord, do you see um, a success for the spread of the gospel or otherwise? What is your perspective? Well, success is kind of a loaded term. We, especially in America, (laughs) we tend to judge everything on our view of 
uh, kind of pragmatic terms, if we if we reach the right numbers, we count that as success. Um, in terms of numbers, if you look at the early church in the first century compared to today overall, the number of professing Christians then versus now, 2,000 years later, is certainly magnitudes larger. But we also have to realize that it progressed and retreated at different rates in different parts of the world. And immediately following the uh, conversion of Constantine, that allowed, or at least the professed conversion of Constantine, I, I can't judge his heart, but uh, Christianity spread rapidly after that. It was spreading rapidly before that, even under the persecution of the Romans. But um, it spread around the world. Hundreds of years ago, it was dominant in Europe. In recent years, uh, it's fallen back in Europe and in North America, while at the same time we're hearing stories of unprecedented conversions in, in the Middle East or in China and so forth. I have a friend, for example, who was raised in Iran and does missionary work in Iran, uh, got his Ph.D. in Islamic studies. He converted decades ago. And he tells me that it's absolutely unbelievable the number of Iranians that are converting to Christ right now. And well, that's neat. they praise God. Um, and we hear similar stories in China. Now, whether all those conversions are real or not, I can't be the judge of that. God only knows. But I don't think we, I don't think we should judge the success or failure, if we use those words, of the spread of the gospel on the basis of just looking at Europe and North America in the last hundred or two hundred mm-hmm. years since the Enlightenment. I think we need to take a bigger picture and also think of success in in broader terms. Success has more to do with us growing to be more and more like Christ than it does having a lot of numbers of people professing Him but not truly following Him. Um, so a small number of truly committed people who are are uh, like the original disciples were will have a much broader impact than a million people who who are following Christ in name only. So I, I, I see a yes and a no side to that answer. <laughs> uh, also, I also, if I might add, growth of the gospel doesn't mean that everything is going to be um, some kind of Pollyanna uh, situation within the world. The growth of the Church and the spread of the Gospel has always been accompanied by pushback from the enemy and by persecution and suffering and so forth. So these two go hand in hand. It's a bloody battle every step of the way. Mm, Yeah, so true. Well, that's interesting. Today we're talking with Dr. Keith Matheson, and he's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformation Bible College. And uh, any summary that you want to make, and uh, also give our listeners some information about the college and uh, where they can also pick up your books and read them, and and that sort of thing. Well, Reformation Bible College is a small college. We opened our doors in the fall of 2011. Our curriculum is primarily devoted to uh, the study of all of the books of Scripture, all of the topics of systematic theology. We have uh, great works classes that look at the great works of literature, philosophy, apologetics, church history, historical theology, sacred music. We 
attractive, somewhat unique niche of students, uh, these students who are really interested in studying these things very deeply. Many of them go on to seminary, but uh, a lot of them are just studying because they want a better grasp for, for themselves in order to teach their families or their churches or Sunday schools, small groups, what have you. So we have graduates going into a variety of different fields and in a variety of directions. My books are available and in the standard places like Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and so forth, um, or you can order any of them from Ligonier Ministries, where I work. Uh, Reformation Bible College is connected with Ligonier Ministries. Yeah, yeah and uh, the spelling of your last name is M-A-T-H-I-S-O-N, in case yes. the listener would like to uh, do a Google on you and go to Amazon, look up that name, or go to Ligonier, look up that name, and that way you can uh, get any of the books. Well, uh, Dr. Matheson, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been an honor. And uh, dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. People and